0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General podcast. I am Al, and this will be our last episode for 2016. And, longtime listeners to the show, you guys know that I tend to get off track and get off topic. So, let's take care of that before we even start with our main topic for the show today. 2016 has unfortunately been a very sad year for pop culture. And, you know, this is the time of year where we usually look back and sometimes we take a look at the lives that were lost. I am recording this on December 28th, and unfortunately, we lost uh, Carrie Fisher just the other day, of, who, of course, played. Uh, Princess Leia in the Star Wars movies, but she's not the only geek culture person. We also lost this year uh, another Star Wars actor, Kenny Baker, who we never saw him on screen, or at least I don't think we ever saw him, but he was the one behind R2-D2, or inside R2-D2, I guess, however you want to put it. Um, Unfortunately, we also lost... Ron Glass, who many geeks we know, of course, played uh, Shepard Book in the Firefly TV series and the uh, Serenity movie. We lost a few other important people as well. Uh, John Glenn, one of the uh, astronauts, first astronauts in space. And we also lost uh, Muhammad Ali, one of the greatest boxers of all time and also a humanitarian as well and from what I understand he did uh, no small amount of charity and philanthropy as well as uh, his his work as a boxer so it was sad to see him go and of course we lost several talented musicians uh, David Bowie uh, we also lost Prince, we lost uh, just again recently also lost uh, George Michael Uh, We lost Gene Wilder, who Chad and I, we talked about that a while ago when we were talking about his portrayal of Willy Wonka and kind of comparing that to how Johnny Depp compared that. And of course, there have been lots of memes floating around Facebook like, some people are saying that what was 2016 written by the guy who does Game of Thrones uh was his name George R Martin I think it's uh, but anyways and I I know there was also uh I read a story that someone's like quick we all have to make sure that uh that Betty White survives and of course Keith Richards is uh from the Rolling Stones he's still alive and kicking which I'm sure surprises a lot of people when you consider how much drugs and alcohol that guy has done. And I mean, I'm sure that, you know, he's probably cleaned up his act by now, but I guess that's become a a running joke with some people. It's like, you know, how Keith Richards must be like a Highlander or something because he's, you know, he's been through a lot and he's still alive and kicking. So Kind of the sad part of the year, always, you know, looking back at the lives that are lost, and, you know, hopefully 2017 will be better and we won't lose as many talented celebrities as we did this year. But, yeah, of course, this is always a time of looking back. And there was another episode I was going to do today, and uh, Chad and I did start recording it, but unfortunately, something came up and we haven't been able to. Uh, re-record that episode yet and one of the things we mentioned when we were just kind of chatting before that it's like you know this was around the time when everyone was starting to get their Christmas trees up and you know I was thinking about it it's like in a way you know especially if you're married and you have kids the Christmas tree takes on a whole new meaning it it's like it becomes how can I say this, kind of like a time capsule of your married life together. So any other listeners out there who are married, you'll probably get where I'm going here. Because, you know, you think about it, usually, you know, after you get married, uh, you're going to have a friend or a family member who gives you that our first Christmas ornament. It, you know, maybe it has a bride and a groom on it. And, you know, maybe it even has a picture of, you and your spouse when you were married. Uh, of course, if you have kids, you're probably going to get the baby's first Christmas ornaments. And I, I don't know about you guys out there, but we still have some of the ornaments that my son made in art class at school. So it's kind of interesting just to take a look at the pictures of him in those ornaments just to see how he has uh, changed over the years. And whenever my wife and I go somewhere interesting, we do try to pick up an ornament, uh, just to kind of remind us of, of that trip. And, you know, there's several ornaments on our tree that actually kind of have stories behind them, but not going to get into that. So hopefully, uh, a little Christmas cheer there to kind of get you past the, you know, the sad thoughts of, uh, some of the people we lost this year. And of course, as the year's ending, we also look ahead and there are possibly going to be some changes coming to the the, the channel the, that I host my podcast on here. I have been talking with Chad and I know he had some ideas for some shows that he wanted to put together, so I don't know if we're going to host that on my Podbean site or if he wants to do that on his own, but that that's something else we might be doing and i know i've talked with uh, a couple other friends of mine and i about doing uh maybe like an old style radio broadcast so you know like see back in the old days before tv became you know commonplace you know you had your radio shows and there was a star wars radio drama for example uh Sherlock Holmes, I believe, had a radio drama. And another one that I remember listening to quite a few episodes of was The Shadow. You know, the tagline for the character was, What evil lurks in the hearts of man? The Shadow knows. And you know what his power was? He was an expert hypnotist, among other things. And I guess he would hypnotize you so quickly to make you not see him so that's something that we might do that's something that i it's probably not going to be a regular thing because i'm just busy with so much other stuff right now but we're hoping to put something like that together for the coming year so stay tuned and you know we might see some uh, new shows come to the channel and you know of course uh once those if those new shows do go to air please feel free to send feedback and comments on them because I always do appreciate any feedback that people have about the episodes. But, on to today's topic. I think I've rambled long enough for now. It's been a while since I've done a historical gaming episode. And you might remember a while ago I did an episode called Historical Gaming Oceana. And I mentioned in there that Australia is considered a part of Oceania, but I didn't touch upon it in that particular episode because I really wanted to devote an entire show specifically to Australia. Now, if the late, great Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, taught us anything, it is that Australia is home to many unique animals, And as he was often fond of saying, and I apologize, I'm going to probably mangle the Australian accent here, but sometimes when he was talking about a specific animal, he'd be like, danger, danger, danger. So not only is Australia home to a lot of unique animals, it's also home to some very dangerous ones as well. All you have to do is look under a rock or look behind a bush and chances are there will be at least three types of animals that can kill you quickly and painfully. And uh, one humor site that I go to, uh, Cracked.com, they had an article where they were talking about poisonous uh, animals and some of the most venomous animals in the world. And they described Australia as nature's end boss level. uh, Because I was reading somewhere that they actually have the highest concentration of venomous snakes in the world, uh, it's like the taipan, I believe is one of the snakes that you can find there. And then, of course, you go in the water. You've got great white sharks. You've also got, I think it's the box jellyfish. They, so it's like nowhere in Australia is safe. So if you are going to be running a historical campaign in Australia, and for today's show, we're going to be talking about pre uh, contact with Europeans, so again, ancient Australia it's gonna be a dangerous place, so you might want to take a cue from the dark Sun campaign setting. I remember in that box set they were saying that you start your characters off at level three for the reason well the sole reason that there are gonna be a lot of dangerous animals running around, so you might want to consider starting your characters a uh, couple levels up just to make sure that they've got a little bit better saving throws or a little bit higher hit points to withstand some of the critters that they might encounter there. Now another thing that's interesting about Australia is it does have a quite a large range of climates. Northern Australia, being pretty close to the equator, is going to be more of a tropical environment. And the tropical environment gives way to grasslands as you start to move south. The interior of the continent is a large desert. And then it starts to cool down into a more temperate climate once you get to southern Australia. Now another thing I want to mention before I begin, well a couple of things actually. Uh, Now of course I will be talking mostly about second edition, dungeons and dragons in this episode and it's again nothing against the other editions it's just that that's the edition of dungeons and dragons that i have the most uh, familiarity with and that i have the most resource materials for so I'm, i'm sure you can of course find ways to adapt that if you are going to be doing like a first edition a third a fourth a fifth or maybe even a basic campaign set in australia Now, also, when we create a historical-based campaign in Australia, we run into one of the same challenges that we encounter when creating a Native American campaign. And if you go back to the episode that my friend James and I did on doing a Native American-themed Dungeons & Dragons campaign, one of the things we mentioned is that there's a few hundred different types of Native American tribes in the U.S. and Canada. So naturally, these tribes are going to have significant differences. And when they talked about Native American uh, deities in the d and source books, they usually took a very generalized approach for that reason. So we kind of need to do the same thing when we are discussing creating a historical campaign Based in Australia, because again, there's tons and tons of different tribes here. And I, one place I was reading was saying that, you know, there's at least about 200, 250 different dialects of the languages in Australia. And some of these dialects are so regionalized that they're only spoken by maybe 50 to 100 people. So, let's get started with classes. Now, I think most classes in Dungeons & Dragons are appropriate for a campaign based in ancient Australia. The two that I would recommend against, uh, at least for the warrior classes, would be the monk and the paladin. At least as far as I could tell, there's nothing really equivalent to that in the, in any of the uh, ancient Egyptian cultures. Or I'm sorry, not ancient Egyptian, ancient Australian cultures that I tried to read up about when uh, researching this podcast. Again, the idea of the Paladin, this mounted knight in shining armor, very, very out of place. I I mean, I suppose, as I said before, if you want to take the, when we were discussing Native American, and I think I mentioned this when I was talking about Egyptian campaigning as well, if you want to take away the European image of the knight in plate mail on a huge war horse, and you could always simplify that to just a holy warrior representing the embodiment of lawful good, you could probably do that, wouldn't really recommend it, I Don't think that there was really an extensive system of unarmed combat among ancient Australians. I'm sure they probably had at least some form of wrestling, but it probably wasn't as developed enough to make a monk class really fit in. The thief class, also not really appropriate, because some of these people that live there, these tribes, they tended to be... Very nomadic, and they didn't really keep a lot of material possessions, so yeah the the idea of the person who makes his, his or her living by stealing from others probably not gonna work in this type of a campaign now, if you want to allow a character to take the thief class as being more of like a scout and just take the skills like moving silently hiding in shadows climbing you probably could but again this idea of the thief character not very not really very appropriate well to the other two fighter classes in addition to the paladin those two the two warrior classes of the fighter and the ranger i think would work both work very well in an ancient australian campaign now, of course, the fighter is always going to work because every culture across the world is going to have its its warriors, its fighting men. So the only real limitation that a fighter is going to really have is just what weapons and armor that he is going to be limited to. Now, since there are vast tracts of wilderness in Australia... That's why I think the ranger is very appropriate. So a ranger character could fit the niche of, you know, like a scout for his tribe, but I think he works really good as the hunter. So a ranger could be seen as the member of the tribe who's much better at survival and outdoor skills than his fellow tribesmen are. Because of course, when we are talking about these primitive cultures, yeah. They, everyone needs to know how to be able to hunt and fish and live off the land. But the ranger is going to be the one who truly excels at it. Now, wizards, they're also appropriate uh, because when I was doing my research, there are some, uh, well, black magic, I guess you could say. That kind of stuff is known in Australian folklore. Now, as with many historical campaigns... If you are going to, going to allow Wizards, it would recommend only allow them access to spells that produce more subtle effects. You, you know, again, an Aboriginal Wizard casting Meteor Swarm and Ice Storm and Lightning Bolts, Fireball. Mm, yeah, that's going to be kind of out of place. Of course, if you do want to allow that, hey, more power to you. But I think one specialty Wizard that would be appropriate is is necromancy and there are some interesting magic items that i came across when researching the this topic well maybe not magic items is really appropriate but the way that some people were believed to use spells to to harm someone and i'm going to do a disclaimer for from just to keep in mind through the episode chances are I am mispronouncing a lot of these names. So if anyone out there does know the correct pronunciation, I apologize. I'm probably mangling it horribly. But one unusual type of item was the Nagundi. And this, this is actually kind of a very tricky, difficult magic item to make. Because what you would do is first, you would need a bone from an animal that was eaten by your intended victim. So like if someone ate a bird, you know, they cooked up a bird and they were eating the the meat off of the bird's leg and just kind of threw the bone aside, you would need to get that bone in order to make this item. And the Nagahundi, the uh, process to create this item, you had to first carve the bone into a needle-like shape and then prepare it using a complex procedure that usually involved the parts of various animals as well as a corpse. Then you would need to scratch the victim with that needle for it to take effect. Now in reality, you can probably see how this would be effective and how this would be a feared instrument. Obviously if you are taking a a bone and then you're doing stuff to it that involves exposing it to a corpse and you know parts of dead animals, yeah, you're going to get a lot of bacteria in there. So, well, back then they may have thought of it as some type of magic. We can see this as being something that could exist in the real world as being more, you're basically just introducing bacteria or other harmful things into an opponent's bloodstream and that's what's going to eventually kill them. Another way that an Australian wizard might go about killing an opponent is they might use something called a bulk, and this was a dark colored stone that was said to be so deadly, it could be dangerous to other people if they even just touch it, so a bulk would hurt anyone other than the person who created it. Now, this is going to be a little harder to use against someone. What you would, what you would need to do is, and pardon the potty language here, but you, you would basically need to find the poop of the person who you want to kill and then put this rock into that person's poop. And then that would, that would bestow a curse upon them that would eventually lead to their death. So, not sure exactly how that was supposed to work, but, you can see how this would be a tricky uh, way to kill someone because you'd have to follow someone around until they relieved themselves, and then when they walked away, take this this dark colored stone and pop it in their poop, and then well, eventually the person would die. Now, there's another item that is similar to the Nagahundi, and that is the Neil Jerry. Now, this is a bone from a It has to be a human bone that, again, you carve it into the shape of a needle. Now, the reason that it's similar to the Nagahundi is because its creation process involves exposing it to a corpse. It's like you would stick it into the flesh of a corpse for a certain amount of time, do some other things to it, and then you would expose it to the the liquefying remains of a corpse. And then this particular type of item, though, was... Generally used on just a sleeping victim. And again, you you could probably understand how there might have been some historical basis for this item because you're, well, introducing harmful bacteria into someone's body. Now, another black magic item, or actually, this is not really an item, but I guess you could say it's kind of like a spell. It's called bone pointing, where you curse a victim by pointing a bone at them. And it is said that someone under this curse will gradually start to become more frightened and afraid. Eventually, they'll start to refuse food and drink, and essentially they would die of hunger and thirst. So this particular folk magic item, you you could say the the effect there is kind of like voodoo, where... The effect of, like, a voodoo doll, for instance, or a voodoo curse is supposed to come from the person's fear of that item. So, if you see someone pointing a bone at you and I guess saying some sort of incantation, then yeah, it's you might have that psychological distress that would cause you to uh, eventually deteriorate and become so afraid and so worried that you start refusing food and drink. As far as I can tell, there wasn't really an organized priesthood, but priestly characters I think are are appropriate because there are tales of shaman in ancient Australia and uh, their various practices. Uh, one of the tribes from Western Australia, they uh, have a term the the N- Ngang Kari and From what I could tell, this is like a multi-class bard cleric. They were the healers and doctors of their tribe, but they were also storytellers. I think druids are also appropriate. Uh, Again, not necessarily as presented in the Dungeons & Dragons player's handbook, but if you're taking that idea of the person who draws their power from nature itself, you could use that a druid in this type of a campaign. Now here's another option to consider, speaking of druids, and I think this could also be something with rangers as well. Now it is believed among some of these tribes that when a pregnant woman feels her baby move for the first time, it is because of activity from a land spirit. And when you are born, you're considered a custodian of the place that you were born in. So how you want to incorporate this into your campaign is up to you. But I could see giving rangers or druids a bonus to whatever effect you decide to incorporate with this because if they're near a place where they're born, then they're going to have that special connection to that area. And since rangers and druids are usually seen as the protectors of the land... That's why I think it could be pretty appropriate. Now, for a little bit more inspiration, you might want to take a look at the way druids are written in the Dark Sun campaign setting. It's been a while since I've read the book, but as I recall, druids, again, filled that same uh, niche niche as they were the protectors of a specific plot of land. And in 2nd edition, in the Complete Rangers Handbook, they had a character kit called the Guardian. Who also fulfilled that same role as being someone who takes it upon themselves to protect a certain area of land. Now, one interesting character I came across while researching this topic was the Kurdachia. And this is more or less a, a ritualized killer. So you could actually do a cup co- to work with this a couple different ways. They could be an assassin. Or they could be someone who avenges the death of another person. So I think for the sake of a player character, it would probably be work better as someone who avenges the deaths of others. And here's how that would work. Some tribes believed that there's no such thing as a natural death. All deaths were due to a curse from an enemy wizard or from the work of an evil spirit. Now, the Kradachia, they specialized in tracking down the, the person or the spirit that killed the person who died. And uh, there's other there's ways they might do this, either through the use of magic, or another thing that they might do is when that person was buried, they might look to see if there's any burrowing animals that make a a burrow away from the grave into a certain direction. So let's say you buried someone who had died, and then maybe a few days later you saw a burrowing animal go from the area where the grave is to the west. Then that means, you know, okay, the person who killed that individual, they live somewhere to the west of there. So that might be an interesting take on... Uh, Again, not necessarily an assassin, but again, someone who does avenge the deaths of others. Now, if you are using 2nd edition, there are some character kits that I think would be appropriate for Ancient Australia. You could use the Barbarian Handbook. I mean, I think the Barbarian Priest, or I think they just called him the Shaman in there, and the Barbarian Warrior would both be appropriate. And there's actually... Two character kits in that book that are directly based off of ancient Australians, the Bush Runner and the Dreamwalker. Now there's another character kit in that book called the Wizard Slayer, and their purpose is to destroy evil magic items. So that could serve as a template for the Kardachia character. In the Wizard Handbook, the Anagok could be appropriate and the Savage Wizard is another option. These are essentially wizards that come from extremely primitive and savage cultures. Uh, the Cleric Handbook has the Savage Priest that you could use. The Fighter Handbook, uh, the Savage Warrior is another option. Uh, there's also the Wilderness Warrior. So again, these are Characters who are not necessarily rangers, but they're exceptionally good at surviving in the wilderness. For rangers, I already mentioned one type of ranger kit that would be appropriate, the Guardian, but I think also the Beastmaster, the Seeker, and the Pathfinder could work as well. Now one other class... Uh, which I just realized I forgot to mention earlier. Sorry about that. The Bard. Now, I think the Bard in an ancient Australian campaign would fulfill a similar purpose to how we would, how James and I discussed, you could incorporate a Bard into a Native American-themed campaign. In this case the bard would be, well, they serve more as the storyteller as opposed to the jack-of-all-trades. So in Aust- ancient Australian bard, they would be the person who passes on the oral history. So, again, thieving abilities would not be appropriate for that character, but a lot of the other abilities would be fine, like for magic Uh, Illusion magic or anything that could be used to enhance their storytelling abilities, that would be appropriate. Uh, The legend lore ability and the ability to influence reactions, those would work pretty well as, as well. Well, next we move on to weapons and armor. Let's get armor out of the way first. Now, as far as I can tell, ancient Australians didn't really have any sort of armor that they wore. The only type of armor they really used was a shield. Now, I suppose you could allow leather or padded armor, even though it's not really historically accurate. But considering that a lot of the continent is quite hot, you're only going to probably find people using leather armor or padded armor in the uh, the southern part of the continent. So as I've mentioned before, yeah, since we do have a culture where armor is rare, but shields are common, I think it's appropriate to allow some sort of shield specialization where again, for at least warriors anyway, as you go up in level, you get better and better with using the shield. Now, as far as weapons, they did have bows, but they usually used bows more for hunting. Uh, they didn't, it seems that Using a bow in combat was not common to ancient Australians, at least from the records we have. They did have stone axes, but again, those were more just tools for cutting wood as opposed to actually using it to hurt somebody. Clubs, of course, are going to be very common. Uh, Usually a club was hardened over a fire, and sometimes it was set with sharpened quartz to help it inflict a little bit more damage. The primary weapon would have been the spear. And some Australian spears could get as long as nine feet long, so you could allow that as a footman's lance. Most Australian spears were usually did have a barbed head, so these were designed to inflict the maximum amount of damage. Now, of course, what would Australia be without the Boomerang? And this is probably the most well-known of Australian weapons. There's a couple different types. There are types that are designed to return, and then there's the non-returning types. Usually the returning types were those were more for just entertainment. So, you know, you get bored, you throw your boomerang and try to catch it. Non-returning boomerangs were often used to hunt small animals as well as throw at opponents. There were even some larger, heavier boomerangs that were designed to be used in melee combat just like a club. Another interesting item we see in ancient Australia is the Womera. And this was basically a multi-purpose tool. You, It looked kind of like, well, for lack of a better term, kind of like a fish shape where you have the, the short narrow end that would be like the fish's tail and then a longer area that would be the fish's body. And it could be used for simple tasks like digging, but... Its primary purpose was to be used as a spear thrower, like an addle-addle. And it could also be used as a parrying device in melee combat. So the Woomera would be a very useful item to have as well. Now Australia does give us some ideas for magic items you could incorporate. Aborigines were known to play a variety of games using string, similar to something like Cat's Cradle. One researcher noted a young woman who was able to perform complex hand movements to create about 200 different shapes using string. Now I think that you could work this in the the campaign in several ways. If you want, you could use that as a, a substitute for material components for spells. So rather than using the material components that you might find in the player's handbook, Instead, you the working the magic required you to do these complex hand movements with um, a string. One other fun way you might want to work this into the campaign is you could have a string that acts like a wand. Let's say, for example, a wand of lightning bolts. So what the character would have to do is they would have to make maybe like an intelligence check and a dexterity check to mo- make the appropriate hand movements. And once that's done, it shoots out a bolt of lightning. And like a wand, it would have a limited number of charges. But here's something else that might be fun to work with that. Let's say that the person fails their hand movements that they're trying to do. You could treat failures like rolling on the chart for the Wand of Wonder. So maybe you think you're going to be able to use this to shoot a lightning bolt at someone, but instead, all of a sudden, grass grows around your feet. And maybe it summons a mouse. So something fairly useless. Now, it is also possible to use magic instruments in the Australian campaign as well. Probably the most well-known of Australian musical instruments is the didgeridoo. And usually these were hollowed out pieces of wood that could be anywhere from 3 to 10 feet long. So that's something to keep in mind. It is going to be kind of hard to lug these around. You're probably going to be using mostly just the... You know the three foot ones because those are going to be a lot easier to carry with you. But you could use that as a substitute for a horn of blasting, or really any magical musical instrument that you blow into. You could use a didgeridoo for that as well. dos were also, were usually accompanied by clapsticks, which are just decorated sticks that someone would beat together to keep the rhythm for the person that is using the didgeridoo. So again, you could, of course, uh, use that for magical musical instruments as well. Cloaks were not unknown in Australia. So you could use cloaks of protection and any other type of magical cloak that you feel appropriate for your campaign. Now, the type of cloak that we see in Australia is called the possum skin cloak and these cloaks were usually in use only in southern Australia because of its cooler climate and it consisted of possum skins that were stitched together with kangaroo sinew and then coated with fat or icor to both protect and decorate the cloak. Now these cloaks were very valuable And they were handed down through the generations and were considered a family heirloom. They were waterproof when constructed properly and were also used as blankets as well. So not only would that work well as a, you know, a cloak of protection, you could also use that to introduce like cloaks of invisibility or cloak of the bat, any other fun cloak, whether cursed or useful that you can think of. Now, some aboriginal tribes, they did have something similar to the war paint that we saw with Native Americans. They used a clay-based substance to draw designs on their body. So you could create a variety of these clay paints that produce beneficial magical effects. Maybe you might have one type of magic clay that, again, when you use that to coat your body... Maybe it gives you an armor class bonus, or maybe it provides a bonus to defend against fire or ice or a certain type of damage or certain type of attack. Now, of course, the downside is since it is this just this clay substance, eventually it's going to start to flake off. So it, it wouldn't be something that would last too long, but it could be something that a uh, a character might want to uh, have if they there's a you know if there's a major battle that's expected. Now, remember how I talked about the cordicia the uh, the uh, ritual killer or well maybe not the ritual killer but the person who avenges the deaths of others now they actually had a type of shoe that they were said to have worn these were actually closer to slippers though they were made from human hair and feathers that were soaked in blood it was said that these slippers left no footprint so i could see this acting as the equivalent of elven boots where they let you move silently with a high chance of success another item we see in ancient australia and actually it's in other parts of the world as well but the bull roarer which is a slab of usually wood sometimes it's made of bone that is attached to a, a string and whirled about over your head and it made a kind of an unearthly sound so i think there's Lots of interesting ways you could incorporate magical bull roarers into uh, an ancient Australia campaign. Now, these bull roars were said to be very sacred. And in some places, if you heard the sound from a bull roarer and you were not initiated to the tribe, that was actually an offense that was punishable by death. Now, if any of you have the After Peak Oceana product, uh, there are some ideas for bull roars in there. Uh, Like One you could have is the bull roar of fear, where when you're swinging it around, it causes anyone that's hostile to you to make a saving throw or be affected by a fear spell. Another option is you could have uh, one that the sound it makes produces a loud drone, kind of like a... A large group of insects. And this this droning distracts you and makes it impossible to cast spells or do anything that requires concentration. Or you could have a bull roar that when you're swinging it around it keeps undead or a certain type of monster at bay. Well now we move on to ancient Australian religion. And like with Native American religion, There's lots of different tribes, and there's lots of different cultural myths and legends, so I'm going to be taking a very generalized approach here, especially when I start talking about some of the ancient Australian gods and goddesses. Now, when we look at the Aborigines religion, there is a concept called dream time, also called the dreaming. Now, the actual term is difficult to translate into English because from what I understand, some of these tribes down there actually didn't have a word for time. They didn't have a concept of that, of, of time as, as we know it today. So I I apologize. I'm not sure if I'm understanding what I read about the dream time correctly, so I might be wrong on this, but sometimes dream time is referred to as Everyone. It's not necessarily the past, but it isn't quite the present and isn't quite the future either. Dream time is sometimes referred to as the time out of time. And that's when the earth was inhabited by ancestral spirits. So these were not gods, but they were respected nonetheless. And many of these cultural figures had superhuman abilities of some type. Also, it's said that the dream time, it's not something that you just go to when you're in in times of need or when, uh, you know, just like certain times during the day or certain times during the week. The dreaming is something that you live up to, again, every day, every second of your life. And I think that kind of plays into what I was talking about before with how some um, Aboriginal tribes didn't think that it was natural for someone to die from natural causes like old age. Instead, if someone dies, it's because of an outside source. So that's a very short, brief, and probably not an entirely correct explanation of the dream time. But one thing in the dreaming that I did read about, and this could actually be kind of fun to work into a campaign, it's something that... Bards could do or, or clerics could do, but it's said that crisscrossing the landscape of Australia are paths called song lines. A song line is a path that was created by a god or other spiritual being. It is said that someone with the appropriate knowledge could use these lines to quickly travel across the continent by singing a certain song. So while a teleportation spell might seem out of place in an ancient Australian campaign, you could still allow a similar effect with a song line, where if you've got a bard or a cleric who knows the appropriate words to the song line, they could sing that song in order to carry them from one area to another within a very short amount of time. Now, there's many different gods that were worshipped by the different uh, tribes and peoples of ancient Australia. I'm just going to focus on some of the ones that I found most interesting. Uh, first, there is Bayami And this is a character that he fulfilled the role of the supreme creator, Sky God. And he has a wife... Okay, and I, okay, I'm okay, i probably going to really mangle this pronunciation, but... Birognolol... Okay, it's... lo <laughs> Ah, uh, your guess is as good as mine. But anyways, so she was a fertility goddess. And it was also said that she was the wife of Bayami. And she also had control over the floodwaters. So... It was said that if you approached her correctly, she could bring you floodwaters when you needed it. We also have Daromulum, And this is the son of the, the sky god and the fertility goddess I just mentioned. It was said that he speaks through the bull roar. And he often appeared as a giant, but could also change into any animal. He was a weather god and often acted as an intermediary between his father and between people. It was said that he lived on the moon and was also the god that protected the shaman. Next we have Kunapipi, and this is a mother goddess who is also said to be the patron of heroes. So maybe if you've got a character who, if they're supposed to be going on a heroic quest they might receive visions or assistance from this particular type of goddess. So, in a way, we kind of see a parallel with that in some of the Greek legends where it wasn't unusual for a Greek god or goddess to kind of take a hero under his or her wing and help them along their path. Like, again, probably the one that comes to mind is Perseus and how he was aided by Athena, as well as a few other gods. And I believe that uh, Hercules was usually aided by Zeus, and I think Jason from the Argonauts was usually aided by Hera. Next, we have Nogomain, And this is a god who is said to have created himself from nothingness. And he also creates the spirits of children before they are given to their parents. So I just found that kind of interesting because usually when you have a, a deity from an ancient culture that's somehow associated with children or childbirth, usually it's a female goddess. Another important goddess in some parts of the Australia was Yehi. It's spelled Y-H-I, so I guess that's how it's probably pronounced. But she was a solar goddess. It was also said she created the plants and animals. And it was also said she encountered demons who tried to sing her to death. But the light and warmth that she that she emanated dispelled the darkness of these demons and that's where insects came from. We also have Wamben, And this was a cruel god and it said that his favorite pastime he liked to attack travelers with bolts of lightning. There's also Wuluwade, and this was a rain god, and he fulfilled a role similar to uh, Charon from Greek legend. It was said that he would ferry the souls of the dead into the afterlife. Perhaps one of the most important deities or divine figures in ancient Australian mythology is the Rainbow Serpent. Now, the Rainbow Serpent is called by many different names. And it is said that she created, well, actually not she, some legends say the Rainbow Serpent is male, others say the Rainbow Serpent is female, and then still you have some other uh, tribes where they didn't really picture the Rainbow Serpent as male or female. But it was said that the Rainbow Serpent created the valleys, rivers, mountains, and many other land formations while slithering across what was once a flat, featureless landscape. The Rainbow Serpent also has ties to fertility and plays a role in several Aboriginal creation myths. But perhaps the most important aspect of the Rainbow Serpent is that it controlled the rain and the water. So obviously if you're from a tribe that's in central Australia where it's very hot and very uh, dry, this would be a very important character for you to worship because you need that water to, to live. Now, of course, as I mentioned before, there's lots of dangerous animals in Australia, real ones, but there's also some mythological creatures that could be kind of fun to work into a campaign. One is called the Malingi. Now these were nocturnal spirits, and it was said their knees were made of stone. It is said that when their knees knocked together, it made a noise, so that could actually help you avoid getting ambushed by these evil spirits. We also have the Mimi. These are tall, thin, fairy-like creatures. It was said that they lived in crevices in uh, rocks. They could be friendly or hostile, depending on how they were approached. And it was also said they taught people how to hunt and how to cook. Next we have Papin Juari. This is a large cyclops-like monster. And it was said that these monsters ate the corpses of the dead and drank the blood of the sick. So, kind of like vampires, I guess you could say. It is also said they appeared in the night sky as shooting stars. They believed that the shooting star was a, one of these creatures where they were traveling through the sky carrying a torch in one hand and a war club in the other. There's also the Bunyip. Now the Bunyip translates to something along the lines of devil or evil spirit. It's also one of the most well-known cryptids of Australia where... People have claimed to have cited these things. The bunyip is a vicious, animalistic spirit that can take many different forms. Sometimes it's described as being quadrupedal and having a tail. Its face has often been described to resemble a horse or a dog or sometimes a combination of several different animals. Its skin sometimes is said to be scaly, sometimes smooth, sometimes furry. So there's also no universal agreement on its size either. Sometimes they're said to only be about the size of a dog. Other times they're much larger than people. So usually they live in watery environments with a preference towards swamps and brackish waters. So it's said that its favorite victims were women and children, but it would kill anything it could sneak up on. Along the similar lines, there is the Borawungal, and these are female spirits who inhabit bodies of water. It was said that they would often approach lost or injured travelers, usually promising to help them, but their true goal was to trick them into a place where they could drown them and kill them. Finally, there's the yawi also known as the Yahoo. And this is Australia's version of Sasquatch or the Bigfoot. And they're mostly reported to be around Queensland or New South Wales. They're taller than people. And it's said that they tend to be more curious than aggressive. So you could probably use the D&D statistics for a Yeti to form the basis for the Yowie. Now, uh, also it said that they... They do smell, and they have a powerful smell to them, kind of like the the skunk ape of North American folklore. Well, in closing, there's a couple other things I I found that might be kind of interesting to work into an ancient Australian campaign itself. There was a type of ceremony called a bora, and this was a coming-of-age ceremony for young men. This is the ritual where the boy was finally recognized as an adult man. On similar uh, lines, we've got the walkabout. And this is when a youth was required to live apart from the rest of the tribe to show that he could hunt and provide for himself. So that might be a an interesting way to start a campaign where your characters are all adolescents who are about to go through that coming-of-age ceremony and they have to go through the walkabout where they have to spend some time in the wilderness hunting their own food and defending themselves from monsters. Also, there was a game that was played among Aborigines called Marne Groke. It's kind of similar to soccer, and there's some speculation that the sport may have provided some of the groundwork for Australian football. But that's hotly debated. And essentially, this is a game that involved kicking a ball. You could catch it. I don't think you could run with it like you could in football. So it was more like soccer where you kicked the ball, and if you caught it, you had to kick it. You couldn't, you know, it said not like football where once you caught it, you could go run. And some of the Europeans who recorded this game said that there really wasn't a method of scoring so they didn't really keep track of who was winning or who was losing but it was a game that was well it could be seen as a social activity or a competition between different tribes so that might be a kind of a fun thing to do if you're you don't if you want to introduce something into the campaign that doesn't involve roaming around in the wilderness and you know killing monsters well we're going to call this episode now to a close so like to thank you all for listening and hopefully 2016 has been a good year for you and well if not hopefully 2017 will be a better year for uh, for you as as well so thanks again for listening and have a good evening or morning or afternoon whatever it is wherever you are and happy new year and happy gaming.